I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Well, good morning, everybody. I think we might find ourselves in this weird cusp right now, feeling whatever good feelings we had from Thanksgiving if we celebrated it. I had a very small, very intimate Thanksgiving where I had to do most of the cooking from by myself for the first time, which was pretty fun. But we're, at least in L.A. County, uh, starting up a new three-week period of a stay-at-home order. So, a very strange day today. Still feeling the high of enjoying some pumpkin pie, and now more three more weeks of isolation. So, in this cusp that we're in on this Sunday, I thought we would talk about uh, fear and terror. Specifically, the fear and terror that one might feel in isolation in the woods. When we think back about, uh, when we think back on the the Sangha during the time of the Buddha, before all the nice, big, comfy monasteries with the nice beds and you know tidy little rooms. At first, they were just in the woods. And if they were practicing in the woods, meditation, they were practicing throughout the day and throughout the night in isolation. So, when I think about that, and I've done it myself, I know that that sense of isolation can do really weird things to the brain. And uh, this is something that the Buddha himself was, was asked about. And in particular, the sutta known as the uh, Bhaya Virawa Sutta. So this is the Fear and Terror Sutta from the Majjhima Nikaya, Majjhima Nikaya number four, if you're interested. So what I thought I'd do is... is uh, recite some of that for you so you get familiar with it, and then also talk about my own experiences with fear and terror growing up. So uh, this sutta, like most others, starts with the Buddha hanging out in a monastery. So the Buddha was staying near Sabati uh, in Jeddah's Grove, Anandapitaka's mon- monastery. And a Brahmin named uh, Janusonin came up to him. And, uh, you know, Brahmin from a different tradition comes up and they start sort of talking shop, let's say, you know, oh, so you're, you're the one that all these students have been coming to. You're the guy who's been starting up this tradition of, of monks at this monastery, you know, and the Buddha says, yes, Brahmin, yeah, that's, that's right. The sons of good families who have gone forth from the home life into homelessness out of conviction in me. I am their leader. I am their helper. I am their inspirer. They take me as their example. And this Brahmin, Janusonin, says, But Master Gautama, it's not easy to endure isolated forest or wilderness dwellings. It's not easy to maintain seclusion. Not so easy to enjoy being alone. The forests as it were, plunder the mind of a monk who has not attained concentration. And the Buddha agrees. He says, yeah, it is very difficult. It can be challenging to 
maintain seclusion. It's not so easy being alone. The forests plunder the mind of those who have not attained concentration. And the Buddha says, you know, the, those kind of thoughts occurred to me before, before I attained the goal, when I was still a bodhisattva. And he decided to go out into the forest anyway. He says that the thought occurred to me. What if on recognized designated nights, such as the 8th, 14th, and 15th of the lunar fortnight, I were to stay in the sort of places that are awe-inspiring and make your, hand, your hair stand up on end, such as park shrines, forest shrines, and tree shrines. Perhaps I would go to see that fear and terror. So at a later time, on recognized designated nights, such as the 8th, 14th, and 15th of the lunar fortnight, I stayed in the sort of places that are awe-inspiring and make your hair stand on end, such as park shrines, forest shrines, and tree shrines. And while I was staying there, a wild animal would come, or a bird would drop a twig, or wind would rustle the fallen leaves. The thought would occur to me, is this that fear and terror coming? Then the thought occurred to me, why do I just keep waiting for fear? What if I were to subdue fear and terror in whatever state they come? So I'll pause there and talk about my own relationship with fear and terror. So I'll start when I was about four years old. And uh, that's around the time my uncle, who is seven years older than me, decided the most fun thing in the world to do would be to scare the daylights out of his nephew by telling him stories about Bloody Mary. That's, that was the beginning. So Westerners know the story well. People you know, who are not from the West may not. But Bloody, Bloody Mary is a, a ghost that may appear if you're in the bathroom with the lights off, maybe a candle, and you say her name three times or a hundred times or whichever version you've heard. And you stare in the mirror, and after you say it, ooh, she might appear. She might take on your reflection. It changes and moves around until it is her visage. Or perhaps she appears behind you. And so, at the age of four, I became deathly afraid of going into the bathroom by myself. Which, I don't know if you've noticed, that's what most people do. They don't usually take along a friend. So I would be cagely staring around the bathroom, making sure everything was okay, do my business, flush, very hurriedly wash my hands, and run out of there and not look at the mirror at all, because the mirror was danger. And it didn't stop there, because there was one afternoon that my uncle and I were, were uh, in the living room by ourselves, and he decides, you know, we should watch a movie. And I got excited, like, oh, I love movies. Like, maybe we can watch, like, Ninja Turtle or something, you know, because it was the 80s and we loved Ninja Turtles, at least I did. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll put on Ninja Turtles. And uh, what he put on instead was uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Uh, so then I thought Freddy Krueger was going to come after me in my dreams. 
So now, not only was the bathroom not safe, my bed wasn't either. And so I would go to bed at night just wondering when Freddy Krueger was going to come at me with his claws, his glove, you know, the knives. And I was just waiting and waiting. And I'd have to just wait my fear out until I fell asleep. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, th- there were just different versions of that. I'd, you know, I'd be scared of werewolves. I'd be scared of other things. Uh, at one point, he got his hands on those uh, scary stories to tell in the dark or whatever it was. And then I heard that story about the scarecrow named Harold or Arnold or whatever his name was. And then, then I was afraid to walk around in the fields in the, in the time... I was I was uh, living in Tehachapi for a bit, and so there was all these empty fields around that, in my mind, at being maybe five or six years old, looked like farms. So I just imagined that this scary scarecrow was going to run out of the fields and grab me. And so I went through a lot of that uh, until I was about seven or eight years old, and my dad had had enough. He was tired of checking under the bed. He was tired of walking around the house trying to see if there's anything scary. At one point, I heard all this crunching leaves outside or out my window, and I got scared, and I asked my dad to go check, and he'd be like, it's fine, it's fine. But then my mom heard it too, and then middle of the night, my dad just out in the lawn in his boxers, just like, where is this thing, right? What's out there? Turns out it's just a raccoon walking around the house, crunching the leaves, which sounds suspiciously like a person walking around the perimeter of your house at night. And so he he got fed up, and so he decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to rent some horror movies and watch them in the daylight, and you're going to see how ridiculous these horror movies actually are. And so we sat down together, and he got all the classics. He got Poltergeist. He got all these other ones. Put them on. And he's, like, pointing out the fake blood. He's pointing out when someone dropped the mic into the scene, you know. You see a wall shake because it's not even a real house. You know, the stuff that's just basically a puppet. And he pointed it all out to me. Like, look, it's all it's all pretend. Like, what are you, what are you afraid of? And you know what? He was right. All, all the demons were illusions. Just bad makeup and bad prosthetics and bad puppetry. But then the weird thing is, I, I started to enjoy laughing at horror, horror movies. So at around the age of eight, I fell in love with horror movies. And so uh, I'd go to, uh, you know, as I got older, like nine, ten years old, I'd, on the way walking home from school, I'd stop off at the local Blockbuster and scope out the horror section to find out which movie I'd watch next. And so I really began to enjoy watching horror movies. But that didn't mean that the the fear and terror was completely gone. Because at night, alone in my bed, all by myself, it was as if the shadows began to move. I'd see things in the corners. And even still, there's there are these things that happened that I can't really explain, and I'm not trying to convince you of ghosts. I'm not all that convinced myself. But, you know, the TV would turn on by itself or turn off. The radio would turn on by itself and turn off. And there were even a couple times where I swear something grabbed my foot or poked me in the back. And I'd pull the covers over my head and just wait it out. It's like, well, if Monster's going to get me, he's going to have to get through these blankets first, right? And that's just how it went. Until eventually... It all sort of faded away, and I can proudly tell you now that I sleep in bed at night with the closet door wide open, you know? Like, hey, I did it. Now, 
we'll just ignore the fact that I'm married at this point and my wife sleeps, sleeps beside me every night and that's not why I feel a little safer. But I think also it's I overcame the, the scary closet monsters. But there is something about being alone in seclusion by yourself, truly alone. And I've been to monasteries, you know, forest temples where that's exactly what happens. Throughout the day, you're practicing alone. You might have a nice little elevated platform to be on. You might have some cushions to sit on. But it's just the rustling of the leaves, the crunch of twigs, and your own thoughts. And thoughts, when you're secluded like that, can get real weird. And there are creatures about in the woods. I remember being in uh, the main shrine, meditating with others late, in, late, in, late into the night. Only a single candle flame just flickering about, creating shadows throughout the, the main hall. And the thing is, when you're that still and that quiet, the animals of the forest at night are less fearful of you and more likely to come around. So if you've never enjoyed the experience of having a whole family of coyotes running around the meditation hall while you're meditating, man, you're missing out because that's real fun to be in some quiet spot in the mind, in the body, enjoying that feeling. And then you hear just some coyote tearing through across the deck right next to you. The only thing separating you and the coyote is a pane of glass. Whew, exciting. So, the fear and terror that I felt as a child had to be overcome by actually confronting it and facing it and looking at it to start becoming comfortable with being alone and secluded in the dark or not just being alone. And it turns out that the, the Buddha's technique wasn't all that different. So he says that as a bodhisattva, this is before he had attained liberation, uh, as a bodhisattva, he would, he would go out into the woods. He would go out in, into seclusion. He would go out in isolation. And he would confront it. Why do I keep waiting for fear? What if I were to subdue fear and terror in whatever state they come? So when fear and terror came while I was walking back and forth, I would not stand or sit or lie down. I would keep walking back and forth until I had subdued that fear and terror. When fear and terror came while I was standing, I would not walk or sit or lie down. I would keep standing until I had subdued that fear and terror. When fear and terror came while I was sitting, I would not lie down or stand or walk. I would keep sitting until I had subdued that fear and terror. When fear and terror came while I was lying down, I would not sit up or stand or walk. I would keep lying down until I had subdued that fear and terror. So the thing about fear and terror, at least from what I could see, is that there weren't actually any scary things out there. My mind was creating the fear and terror. It was finding things to be afraid of, creating monsters out of the shadows. 
And we do this in many different ways. But we can confront those things. We can look at them head on, understand them. And when we do that, we can begin to subdue those states of mind, subdue things like fear and terror. And it's, it's more than just fear and terror. We can go beyond that. Because if you really look at how fear manifests, I mean, for example, with isolation, the fear is not because we're alone. The fear is because we're afraid we're not. We're, we're not alone. So me as a kid in my bedroom all alone, if I truly was all alone, what is there to be afraid of? I thought that I was not alone. That there were these creepy crawlies under the bed and in the corners and in the closet. I had this giant, huge walk-in closet as a kid. And it had this weird, creepy handprint on the wall when we moved in. I don't know what that was about, but that was another thing to be scared of, you know? <laughs> and so there is that feeling. That feeling of, of maybe there's something there. And when we turn inside and we're actually alone with our minds, I think that's that same issue that we find. We're afraid of what we'll see in the mind. The thing is, we can sit down to, to meditate and have every intention of fostering all sorts of thoughts of you know, goodwill, have all these blissful states. But the truth is, the dark and creepy corners of our mind, we're afraid to look. Just like me as a kid, afraid to look in the mirror. You know what, I'll tell you, sometimes, middle of the night, it's so habitual now, I still won't look at the mirror. But that's the way we treat the dark recesses of the mind a lot of the time. Not just fear, not just terror, but greed, aversion, delusion, sloth, torpor, covetousness for sensual pleasure, right? All of the defilements, all of the effluence, all of these things... A lot of the time, they're things we're afraid to look at, afraid to examine, afraid to really pierce through and subdue. And the funny thing is, once you, once you get around that fear and start looking, you realize, much like those horror movies, you know, it's all paper mache and you know, chocolate syrup. You know, These are things that are easy to overcome eventually, right? They don't feel easy at first, and so we resist, and we resist, and we resist. And we don't even realize the walls we, we put up. We don't realize the barriers and doors we, we close between ourselves and these dark recesses of the mind. But we gotta, we gotta suck up that fear, and suck up that terror, and look anyway. And it's not easy. Not easy at all. And I do think that we're going through a whole year of this kind of thing. A year of, of not wanting to look at what scares us, what intimidates us, what worries us, to really look at our greed and aversion. You know, uh, I, I read in, uh, in the news that over Black Friday, uh, two people were shot at a mall. You know, there's still people out and, out and about doing all sorts of crazy things, trying to buy certain things, avoiding social distancing and having big giant parties and, and whatnot. And you look at that and, and why are people so afraid of being alone? Now, if you think about it, a lot of the time when we're home alone, what do we do? Turn on all the lights, 
put on the TV, put on a podcast, or listen to the radio, put on our favorite songs, something. There's something about the silence that turns up the volume of our thoughts. But those of us who are practicing as Buddhists, I think that's exactly what we want. We want to create that type of silence and seclusion so we can turn up the volume of our minds and be okay with doing that. Want to do that. And if we do that consistently enough, we eventually break through a point where we're no longer assailed by the sound, but find the spaces in between that begin to lead to peace. As an example of that, even in the sutta, the Buddha talks about how he continued to push through fear and terror, to subdue it. And eventually he was able to break through of all of that. And he says that unflagging persistence was aroused in me, and unmuddled mindfulness established. My body was calm and unaroused, my mind concentrated and single, quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. With the stilling of directed thoughts and evaluations, I entered and remained in the second jhana, rapture and pleasure born of concentration, unification of awareness, free from directed thought and evaluation, internal assurance. With the fading of rapture, I remained equanimous, mindful and alert, and sensed pleasure with the body. I entered and remained in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, equanimous and mindful, he has a pleasant abiding. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, as with the earlier disappearance of elation and distress, I entered and remained in the fourth jhana, purity of equanimity and mindfulness, neither pleasure nor pain. So we can turn inward and find, find those states, find those absorptions, find those peaceful points and create a perch onto which we can truly and, and skillfully look at the shadows of our minds. Because in truth, I think that a lot of people who are drawn to Buddhism already are fearful of the shadows of their minds. That's why we, we thirst after meditation, after, after the, the hope of Nibbana, of liberation, because we're already aware they're in there. And so when people hear stuff like the three marks of existence, they're like, yeah, 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 I totally buy into it. Things are impermanent. Things are stressful. Things are not self. Yeah, I totally get it, right? Things are sankhadas, or fabrications, and those are bad, right? And the thing is, the fabrication itself alone is not bad. That the Buddha has us examine our minds so that we can weed out unskillful fabrications and bring and foster and grow in skillful fabrications. Because as we look at the mind and see the shadows there and see the unskillful qualities, we also stumble on skillful qualities. And all of those are fabrications too. So in the same way that fear and terror are fabricated, usually a product of the mind that have real no bearing on what's happening in reality, we can also find fabrications like 
faith or conviction, right? Uh, confidence in the path. Or we can find fabrications like metta, loving kindness. Fabrications like concentration and mindfulness and skillful effort. Those are fabrications too. And those also exist in the mind. Something that we can find upon investigation. But if we're afraid of the shadows, of the demons that might exist in the mind, we're not going to find those other things either. Because we just, we're just sitting there with our eyes closed, with a blanket over our head, waiting for the daylight. Not realizing that that daylight is inside. You got you to gotta pull the blanket back and look at everything head on, see it as it truly is, see its nature, and also realize that everything that you fear is inside, but also everything that you inspire, you, you aspire to be is also inside. That it's not just the greed that's in you, but the generosity. And it's not just the aversion in you, but the acceptance. And it's not just the delusion in you, but the discernment or wisdom. That those all reside in you. That we're all complex like that, tricky. And we're constantly working towards strengthening the skillful fabrications and turning them into path factors. Use, using those fabrications to lead us to the unfabricated, to Nibbana. And it's a kind of a weird, quirky thing that fabricated things can do that, but that's the Eightfold Path. Using fabrications to reach the unfabricated. But it takes willing to sit in the dark, alone with your thoughts, allowing the volume to turn up, and seeing things about yourself maybe you didn't want to see, right? People don't want to see that they're compulsive emotional eaters, or bad partners, or bad drivers, or ungrateful. But when you look at that, you also see examples when you have been grateful, when you have been compassionate, when you have had the wherewithal to act skillfully in your conduct, speech, and action. We have all of that inside of us, all mixed up. And we're in the process of, of, of pulling apart all the threads and, t and getting rid of all the knots and extracting all the skillful and unskillful apart from each other so that we can really identify and cast away the unskillful. And like a ladder, keep climbing up the skillful qualities to full liberation, which is a fun process uh, if you're willing to start enjoying horror movies. <laughs> if you can turn it into something fun, then it is fun, which is why meditation, I believe, always has to be something fun. You know, if meditation feels like going to the dentist, that means that something about the meditation has to change. If something about following the eight factors of the path feels like a struggle, feels like a resistance, that means there, there has to be some kind of pivot done there. We have to find that way through, that way where we don't feel that irritation, we don't feel that, that tug and, and resistance. It's not necessarily like the path of least resistance, like, like water going, through, going down a river, but it is something a lot like acquiring a skill and training it to the point that something becomes easy. Uh, I like I liken it a lot to uh, I liken it a lot to martial arts training. 
you know, I've, I've never been a Mr. Fitness, let's say, but I have enjoyed martial arts. And it always starts off very difficult. Watching me try to do any kind of tumbles or rolls is embarrassing and quite honestly painful. And sparring with people, always really rough. I end up, my body ends up aching. It hurts all over and I end up hating it. Like, why did I decide to sign up for this thing? It's like $200 a month. What am I even thinking? And so on, right? But then you keep at it. You persist, right? Perseverance and persistence, that's an aspect of the path. That's something we're, we're supposed to cultivate. And as you persevere and persist, you, you build up some muscle, you build up some stamina, and then it becomes this enjoyable thing. It becomes effortless. You glide around like a dancer, right? You just flow and move, and, and then it feels good, and then it feels easy. And then you're like, man, I'm, I'm only training two days a week. I should train three days a week. You know what? You know what's better than three? Four. Four is even better, and you get real into it. And the thing is, meditation and mental training, mental cultivation in all of its aspects in Buddhism is exactly like that. That as you build confidence in the path and build confidence in your practice and develop these good feelings of, of rapture and bliss and moving beyond that into deep concentration and moving beyond pleasure and pain and finding true stillness and peace, the development and perfection of equanimity and mindfulness, these states are attainable. And they give us such a good place to actually work from, to do the hard work of training the mind and building up skillfulness and abandoning the unskillful. But they're all already inside us. Everything that we need, all the tools, you know, once we've listened to the talks, once we've read the books, once we've discussed things and figured it out, that all that's left is the practice, the doing of the thing, which is always a turning inward, examination of the body and mind, development, cultivating it, turning it into something pleasant, something that we can rely on always. Because that's what we end up coming down to. That this life is tricky and complicated and messy, and there's so much outside of our control so much that we can't account for, so much that will always disappoint us eventually. But what we can do is turn inward and turn the mind and the body into a source of pleasure, a source of peace, a source of happiness, a true refuge that we, we can return to time and time again and have a blameless kind of peace, a harmless kind of peace that takes from no one that is dependent on nothing else but your own mind. And that's something really worthwhile. That's something worth pursuing. That's something worth developing. And if it means that at first we got to stare at those scary bits, those parts about ourselves we'd rather deny, well, I think it's overall worth it, don't you? And so the Buddha says something uh, similar, I think, when at the end after discussing with this with the Brahmin, says, Now, Brahmin, if the thought should occur to you, perhaps Gautama, the contemplative, is even today not free of passion, not free of aversion, not free of delusion, which is why he resorts to isolated forest and wilderness dwellings. It should not be seen in that way. It's through seeing two compelling reasons that I resort to isolated forest and wilderness dwellings. Seeing a pleasant abiding for myself in the present, 
and feeling sympathy for future generations. <laughs> I find that last part funny, but eventually this, this practice we do becomes such a pleasant thing and, and such a restorative thing that it's, we can rely on it always, indefinitely, forever. And it leads itself, it, 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 put, it gives us so much momentum into truly liberating ourselves from defilements. So, I guess uh, what I'm saying is, uh, don't be afraid of being afraid. Because allowing yourself to feel those things, that's the beginning of all discernment, the beginning of all wisdom, and the beginning of liberation. So I think I'll end there. Thank you so much for listening.